Welcome to the Three Strands Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us. It is our hope and prayer that you will experience God's blessing in your life through our ministry. At Three Strands Church, our goal is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. Glad you guys are here today. Happy Mother's Day. I feel overwhelmed and undone this morning. If you're not familiar with that phrasing from the Bible, there's a story in Isaiah where the prophet Isaiah has a a vision and he sees the Lord in his holiness and he recognizes how wicked he is himself and it says he feels undone. Uh, He recognizes he's a man who's unclean and unworthy to be in the presence of the Lord. That's how I feel this morning. I feel undone and overwhelmed by life. I feel had a busy weekend, have a busy week to come, um, and uh, God was like messing with me this week, because Kenny will tell you, like, we got a teaching schedule, I stick to that teaching schedule pretty religiously, right? I mean, pretty, pretty consistently, and two days ago, like, God changed the series on me, and I was, uh, I don't deal well with that, I'm like, I deal well with structure, so just part of the whole equation, so until two days ago, I thought I knew what I was teaching, and it all changed two days ago, and so the last two days, I've been scrambling to get ready, and I'm like one hour away from being ready. Is that okay? So if you guys all just leave and come back in an hour, we'll be good to go. Is that all right? No. But uh, so I'm just going to try to trust Jesus to speak some truth through me, even though I don't feel prepared, even though I feel a little overwhelmed by life. And to be quite frank and honest with you, this is my first Mother's Day without my mom. And so I've been feeling that all weekend too. And uh, it's overwhelming, you know, like you guys understand, you know what I mean? It's like, but um. But God's grace is greater, and so we're going to learn something from his word together today, I hope. We're starting a new series today called Made for More. We're going to study through the book of Judges, not the whole book of Judges, uh, but I want to challenge you to study along with us if you want during the week. So first week, this week, if you want to stay up with us during the week, just go ahead and read through Judges chapter 1 through chapter 3. It's three chapters, you've got seven days to do it. We can handle that, right? That's like half a chapter a day, then you can take off Saturday. Is that how that works or something like that? But uh, Judges chapter 1 through 3, I'll do that for you each week. And if you follow along that reading plan, by the end of the series, you'll have read through the whole book, even though we're not going to cover quite the whole book. There's around a dozen judges or so. We're only going to talk about five of them in this series. But I'm going to challenge you just to read through the whole book uh, as we go. You'll hear some things today and each week that you can Rehear as you read through on your own and some things we don't cover that you'll pick up. But um, we're going to start this series today called Made for More because the book of Judges is really this uh, compilation or this historical record of the judges of the nation of Israel. They called them judges. They weren't exactly like judges today. We think of a judge today, we think of somebody who hears a case, kind of determines who's right and who's wrong, sets the record straight, or sends people to jail, or things like that. And that was a responsibility of the judges of Israel, too. They did do that. They heard cases, and they tried to decide disputes and things like that. But that wasn't their primary function or their only function. Their primary function, their main function, was really to rescue the nation from oppression. They were in this time in their history where they were being oppressed. They were in and out of slavery, and at different times, God would raise up this individual to come along and lead them out of slavery or out of oppression into freedom, back into God's good graces. We're going to dig into and examine that story today, 
And in that, we're going to see that God didn't pick out like the best of the best to be judges. He didn't pick out, I, I appreciate you coming up front, because if not, it's like nobody in the first two rows, man. I have to like come back here and stand so I could be close. And then oh, Tuesday would be upset because then I'm not in the light anymore. She gets upset about that. So, yeah, I appreciate that. We're going to study through this book, and we're going to look at a few of these judges. But today, I thought we were going to look at the first judge, and we're not. Instead, I'm just going to give you some background on the book. Because I felt like as I was studying, I felt like, you know, just to jump into that first judge, it wouldn't do you justice. It wouldn't explain to us why we had to have these judges, where they came from and all that, and what the reasons were behind it. But as we study through the series... We're going to see God didn't pick out the best of the best to be these judges. No, he picked people that were a lot like us. People who were messed up, screwed up, had problems. They were greedy and they were cowards. They were ordinary and they were people that you wouldn't have thought would have risen to do something great. But God had different plans for them. God had made them for something more. And so I want you to hear by the end of this series, which is six weeks long, but I want you to hear by the end of it that you may feel ordinary, you may feel very sinful, you may feel different than the other people you see. You may come into church and everybody's like, you know, shaking your hand with a smile and be like, what's up, brother, you know, how you doing, brother, love you, brother, you know, can I pray for you and all that. And you're like, I don't always feel like that, right? And just so you know, those people are phony anyhow, they're not, they're just faking it. They don't always feel like that either, right? Just because like their Facebook page looks perfect doesn't mean they're perfect, Okay. In fact, like, I always say, like, nobody's perfect, right? Nobody's got it all put together. If you see somebody and you think they're put together, you just don't know them well enough yet. If you really got to know them, you'd know they were just like you. And that's the case for me. If you got to know me, you would learn that I'm not put together. I'm not like you. I'm really undone. I'm really wicked, just like everybody else. I'm really evil. I'm really, at my core, selfish, just like everybody else. And that's the kind of people God picks out and empowers to do something great in the book of Judges. We're going to read through that history together. Because I want you to see that you're not alone. I want you to see that you're not different than the characters in these pages. And sometimes you may feel very different from them. Sometimes you may feel like you've got like Christian bipolar disorder. You know what I'm talking about? Like you may think like one week I'm super spiritual and I'm reading my Bible, and I'm praying, and I'm going to church, and I'm treating people nice who are treating me like garbage, and I'm being nice to my husband, even though he won't put the remote control down, you know what I mean, talk to me, and I'm being nice, nice to my wife, even though she's nagging me, right? And you're like, I'm super high right now. And then the very next week, you may feel like the devil, right? And you feel like you got Christian bipolar disorder. Judges is your book, Right? It's like God wrote that book for you because you're going to be just like these people. And that's okay. That's how we all are. And God's going to teach us some stuff about that as we study through this. So I just want to read you what I wrote in my notes because I didn't have time to memorize it. Is that okay? I'm just going to read you a paragraph I wrote down about this book. In this series, we're going to crack the window into the human soul. Heroes are going to arise who seem to have the potential to save Israel. But in the end, they each prove to just be a broken Savior that cannot deliver what Israel needs the most. Judges will shed light onto the muddy waters of human rebellion, which is ultimately the thing that keeps you from fulfilling your God-given destiny. Temptations, fears, traps are everywhere. But we'll see how 
God breaks through all of those with His grace. And in the midst of human wickedness, He comes to rescue us and show us that we have been made for more than we ever thought possible. Okay, let me read you the story. Ready? So we're going to start in Judges chapter 1. Let's just read through the beginning of this book and point out a couple things. Here you go, right? After the death of Joshua... So if you are familiar with this part of the Bible, Joshua was like the warrior, commander, leader of Israel after Moses died, right? So God promises to give Israel a promised land, the land of Canaan, that they would live in forever. And he uses Moses to lead them to it. You guys are familiar with that story, right? Moses comes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go, and they go through the the Red Sea, and God parts it, and all that stuff, and then they get to the promised land, Moses dies. Joshua is who takes over for Moses. And he actually leads the nation into the promised land. They conquer lots of other countries. They possess a lot of the land. And Joshua is about to die. Now Joshua is a great man, full of courage, trusted God with everything, and led the nation to great things. But he's about to die, and the whole land isn't conquered yet. There's still, it's a big country. And so there's still pockets of the country that aren't possessed by Israel. Joshua's about to die, so they're like, what do we do? Here's what happens, right? After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, which tribe should go first to attack the Canaanites, to keep fighting this war, to keep taking the land? The Lord answered, Judah, I've given them victory. I don't know why he picked Judah. It's like God put their names in a hat, and he's like, I'm just going to pick one. You guys go, you know? So he's like, he picks Judah, So Judah, for I have given them victory over the land. In verse 4, when the men of Judah attacked, the Lord gave them victory over the Canaanites and the Perizzites. They killed 10,000 enemy warriors at the town of Basic. All right, and then in verse 6, Adonai Basic. Adonai is just like a Hebrew word there for king, right? It's like the king of Basic, right? King of Basic escaped. But the Israelites soon captured him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Because that's what you do, I guess, in the Old Testament when you capture somebody, right? So they cut off his fingers and his big toes. No, no thumbs. No, he probably had trouble walking at that point. Adonai Bezek in verse 7 said, Once I had 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, eating scraps from under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They took him to Jerusalem and he died there. Let's just stop there for one second. This doesn't really have anything to do with the story, but just for context's sake, I want to give you this. Sometimes people look at a book like Judges or other books, especially in the Old Testament, and they think to themselves, this doesn't look fair, okay? It doesn't look right. It looks like some kind of Christian crusade, right, where you go in and you wipe out like these nations of people. You're murdering people, right? Okay, and I'm not going to spend 20 or 30 minutes, I'm not going to spend 13 minutes today, all right, correcting that, correcting that thought. But what I do want to do is just give you some food for thought to maybe change the way you think about that. Here's the first thing I want to point out. If you look back at this verse, verse 7, it's important to notice, you know, the king who was conquered, he didn't think of it that way. Look at what he says. He doesn't say, oh God, you're the God of the Israelites, they're being so unfair to me. No, what does he say? He says, actually, God is just repaying me for what I've done. Like, I'm getting what I deserve, right? And to really see that promise through, you'd have to go the whole way back to, like, Deuteronomy and Leviticus and see where God says, I'm promising you this land. 
I want you to go in there and drive all the people out because they have been so wicked. It's not, like God, it's not like God is saying, go in there and wipe out all these innocent people. No, he's saying, go in there and wipe out all these wicked people. And the king even recognizes that's what he is. He's like, I've done this exact same thing. I'm really getting from God what I deserve. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is you may also be tempted to say, well, that sounds a little dangerous. That is dangerous, right? If somebody today says, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord, they could kill thousands or millions around the world, right? And that happens. But those people are delusional about God's word. The difference between them and Israel at this time was Israel had a clear mandate from the Lord verified by his own words, not a words to one man, words to everybody. Go up and wipe these people out, right? Today, if somebody says that, don't follow them. We live in a different time. At that time, God was using Israel as his tool for justice. That isn't what we do today. Jesus didn't come to bring justice He came to bring mercy. We today are Jesus' tool to spread mercy in the world, not justice. King Jesus will come back again someday to invoke justice on the world. But we don't do that today. We don't go to Muslim countries and, and kill them because they won't follow Yahweh. We don't go to our neighbor and treat them poorly to give them justice for the way they've acted. No, we extend mercy now as God's instrument of mercy, and we trust him to bring justice in the future. That's number one, if that will help change your thinking or um, question your thinking on that at all. Here's the second part. You may look at that and say, yeah, but not everybody would have been wicked or guilty, right? Surely in the whole land of Canaan, there must have been some innocent folks. I mean, what about the kids, right? And that's true. When there's God's justice is being invoked, the innocent often suffer for the punishment that's inflicted on the guilty. But that's no different than it is today, right? You may see a man and he cheats on his wife or he cheats at at his job and he loses his marriage or he loses his job. And you think, well, he deserves that. Rightfully so, right? But do his kids not also suffer the consequences for those punishments? Do his kids not suffer from him having no job and no money? Do his kids not suffer from him and his wife being split up? We see that even today, that often the innocent suffer the consequences of punishment that's inflicted on the wicked. But, but one day, everybody will stand before God, and he will dole out perfect justice. Perfect justice. And those kids that you're so worried about getting treated unfairly, one day they will stand in front of God, and he will be like, come on in heaven, eternal life with me. And at that moment, the injustice that they suffered here will seem like nothing. Let let me give you, it's not a good example, but let me give you the best example I could think of. Let's say you went to the post office this week and you wanted to buy one stamp. Of course, it's 50 cents, right? 49 cents, whatever it is now. I don't know, 50 cents, something like that. But instead of 50 cents, they charge you a dollar. And and you'd get home before you realize it and you're at home, you're like, they they jibbed me. So you take your receipt, because you're kind of like that kind of obsessive, compulsive person. You get a receipt for your one stamp. I don't know what's wrong with you, but you do, okay? So you take your receipt back to the post office, and you complain, this isn't fair, right? I was supposed to pay 50 cents. You charged me a dollar. And the, the guy at the post office looks at you and says, you're right. We've treated you unfairly. So because of that, 
you no longer have to pay federal income tax the rest of your life. You would walk away from that encounter thinking to yourself, the post office treated you in a fairly good way, right? You'd be pretty satisfied. In fact, at that point, you would still be able to justifiably complain about being overcharged 50 cents, but it wouldn't really matter, would it, in light of the great reward you've just been given? Does that make sense? When you get to heaven, all of the injustice you suffered here will seem like the 50 cent overcharge compared to what you get. And just keep that in mind. So I don't know if that changes your thinking on that, but that has nothing to do with the story. I just wanted to share that with you so we could get on the same page because I know some people read stories like this or see books like this and think, man, God's a, a villain. He's out there wiping out nations and stuff, right? Okay, so let's go back to the story. Look down in verse 19. The Lord was with the people of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they failed to drive out the people living in the plains. Some translations say, but they could not drive out the people living in the plains. They failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. Of course they couldn't drive them out. They had iron chariots, right? That was like the tanks of the day. If you just had a handful of iron chariots, you could mow down thousands of foot soldiers, which was all Israel had. Look at verse 27. Then the tribe of Manasseh, they failed to drive out the people living in Beth Shan, Tanakh, Dor, the Klingon Empire, Ewoks, all the other people there, right? They couldn't drive any of them out from the surrounding settlements. Why? Because the Canaanites were determined to stay in the region. They really wanted to stay. They were like, hey, will you guys leave? No, we won't leave. We, I really want you to leave. No, we still won't leave. Well, we'll fight you a little bit. We're still determined to stay here. Well, we'll just draw a line here, and you stay there, and we'll stay here. All right? And then in verse 28, it gets a little better. They say, well, when Israelite grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as their slaves and pay tribute to them. But they never did drive them completely out of the land. Chapter 1 reads as almost like Israel's account or justification to God why they couldn't do exactly what he had told them to do. Every tribe, if you go down through there, says they couldn't drive out all the people. They couldn't drive out all the inhabitants. They couldn't get them all to leave Canaan. They couldn't defeat all of the enemy for different reasons. They had iron chariots. They were determined to stay. They had high walls around their town. For whatever reason, they all had a reason why they couldn't fully obey what God had told them to do. Judges chapter 1. Now look at the beginning of Judges chapter 2. This is kind of God's response to their justification of why they couldn't do what he asked them to do. Judges chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said to the Israelites, I have brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. And this is still true today. The Israelites still live with other people in their land who are a thorn in their side, enslaving them sometimes. They're being freed other times. They're tempting them sometimes. They're exposing them to their false gods other times. It's still going on today because they didn't fully obey 5,000 years ago. This is the story that starts the book of Judges. So I just want to give you three principles from this story that we can take home with us today. Right? I'm just going to give them to you pretty quick. 
Here's the first one. Small areas of disbelief lead to subtle acts of disobedience. Small areas of disbelief lead to subtle acts of disobedience. Why did they disobey? Because deep down in their heart, they didn't really believe what God was saying. God had promised them the land. God has made promises to us today. And we get the choice to believe him or not. Why didn't they believe him? Why didn't they believe him? I could come up with only two reasons why you wouldn't believe God. Really, why you wouldn't believe anybody. But here they are. You ready? They're not going to be on the screen. Let me just give them to you. The two reasons you could not believe somebody, especially God, right? First one is you don't think he's trustworthy. You don't think that he really has your best interest at heart. You don't think the promises he made are really going to come true. So you don't think he's trustworthy. That could be one reason why you don't believe. Here's the other reason. You don't think that the consequences are real. You think that what God says is true, but you think if you don't do it, the consequences he says will happen probably won't happen to you. I mean, they may happen to other people, like really bad people, but not to you, right? I don't know which one of it it is for you, but for Israel it was probably both of those things. And so for whatever reason, they didn't believe God fully. So they got afraid, they got complacent, they got lazy, they just decided not to do some of the things he said. They figured they had enough land. They'd settle in, live their lives, and be comfortable. But God wasn't as impressed with them. Wasn't as impressed with their disbelief. And it was Martin Luther who said, Every sin springs from a wicked heart of unbelief. And I want to just challenge you guys today to claim the promises of God. And if God has promised you victory, stop clinging to defeat. Stop clinging to the stuff that doesn't work. Here's the second principle from the story we just looked at. Subtle acts of disobedience lead to large areas of disaster. You with me? I know it's tough to follow on a Sunday morning, right? You with me? Small areas of disbelief lead to subtle acts of disobedience And subtle acts of disobedience lead to large areas of disaster. 5,000 years they've been dealing with the same disaster. All because they wouldn't obey. All because they didn't believe. The Israelites, they seem to have legit reasons for not obeying God, right? I mean, what do you want me to do, God? I'm just a man, and there's a chariot coming at me. What do you want me to do, God? I tried to get them out, but they were determined to stay. It seems like they got justification for disobeying what God said. But God says to them, you've disobeyed me. And their response back to him is, but God, we tried. We can't do it, but we tried. And God says, actually, it's not that you can't. It's that you won't. And subtle acts of disobedience lead to large disasters. And the question for us today is, where are you saying I can't, but God is saying you won't? I don't know if this will make sense or not, but if you have a wife like mine, which you probably don't because she rocks, I'm just saying. But if you have a wife like mine, she's kind of like a, and she's going to hear this this week, so I just want you to know I'm not getting away with anything here, okay? But when she's making something in the kitchen, like baking, cooking, all that stuff, you know, and, and I cook and bake too, right? Like I'm not, I'm not like that kind of guy. It's like, you know, it's women's work. or anything, but, but when she's doing it, we're very different. I'm like a letter of the law. If it's in the recipe, it goes in the bowl. You know what I'm talking about? She's not like that, okay? She'll size it up and be like, eh, it says butter, but margarine will be all right. 
You know what I mean? You know why she does that? Because she doesn't believe that if she disobeys that recipe, the consequences will be severe. But I'm here to tell you, if you disobey the recipe, you guys know where I'm going with this, right? The guys in the room know where I'm going with this. She'll be like, here, try this. What do you think? And you're stuck. You have no answer then. What are you supposed to say? You're either going to crush her spirit or lie to her face, right? You know what I'm talking about? All I'm saying is butter is not margarine and margarine is not butter. Flour is not cornstarch. That's all I'm saying, okay? If you make small acts of disobedience, the disaster is huge. That was the best way I could think of to explain that, right? And so the question for us today is not, what is it God is asking us to do? The question is, we know what he's asking us to do. What are you looking back at him and saying, I can't, but really he's saying to you, no, you won't. And I see a lot of people, they handle their finances like that. But God, I can't give to you the first and best that I got. And he said, no, 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 you won't give to me the first and best you got. But I can't stick it out with that man. He's a jerk face. And God's like, no, 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 you won't stick it out with that man. You're like, God, I can't put up with any more. Just let me beat him a little bit. You know, <laughs> if you're a parent, you know I'm t- you know you thought that before you liar. And you're like, just let me beat him a little bit, you know. And he's like, no, 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 you just won't obey me. You just won't. What area of your life? Oh, you don't understand the job I have. You have to lie or you won't make any money. I can't be honest. No, 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 you won't be honest. What area of your life are you saying to God, I can't, but he's saying, no, 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 you won't. Is it your integrity? Is is it forgiving somebody else? Is it an unhealthy relationship you're in? Is it your finances? Is it engaging in our community here? What is it that you're like, God, I'm too busy. I don't have enough money. I'll, I'll be alone. That you don't understand what they did to me. I can't forgive. I can't give. I can't get connected. I can't stick it out. I can't do what's right. And he's like, no, 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 you won't do what's right. You see, at this point in Israel's history, they hadn't lost their zealous religion. They just lost the ability to walk by faith. See if I can explain to you the difference of that, right? Anybody in the room ever been repelling? Anybody ever been repelling? Yeah, repelling? Excellent. Excellent. That's what I'm talking about. All right, repelling. All right, anybody ever been rock climbing? Rock climbing? It's a little less dangerous, right? A little less dangerous. Really? Oh, we'll talk about that after church. Rock climbing and repelling. So I'm going to tell you a story I heard from a pastor I respect several years ago, uh, a guy I like to listen to. But he was telling a story about when he was in high school and some of his dumb high school buddies talked him into going repelling. And he said none of them knew how to repel. But some guy had seen like a video on YouTube and he was like, I think we can do it, man. So let's do it. So they go out to this rock face. And it's one of these cliffs where it's like, you know, up here at the top, you've you got the, like the flat part and then the cliff here at the end. And then the cliff kind of goes like this. And then after a little while, it drops back. You know what I'm talking about? Like Yehu Falls kind of does that a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? Yehu Falls. Is that what they call it? Yehu Falls. Where I grew up, Yehu's like what you call an idiot. That guy's a Yehu. <laughs> so it's always, I always want to say Yahoo, but then I think I'm talking about the internet. So you come up here, and then you come down the cliff, and then it drops back, right? So he said he gets up to the edge, and his buddy's like, gets him in the harness. He's like, hey, now you just got to hold on to the rope and lean back. And he's like, I couldn't do it. You know, I'm so scared. 
And so you're like gently leaning back, leaning back, and you feel like the tension on the rope. And at some point, all your weight's on the rope, right? And you're like, okay. And then, he said, and then they say, what do you do next? And he's like, okay, now you got to like jump, right? And he says, I, got, I mustered all the energy I had, and I jumped with everything I had. He said, I think I went like half an inch. And he said his buddy was like, did you jump? He's like, yeah. He said, well, you got to do it again. He said, keep doing it. So he said, he jumped. He said, jump. He got a little better as he went, a little further, five feet, ten feet. Before you know it, he was at the bottom of the cliff, right? So he yells up about 75 feet. He said, he yells up to his buddy, hey, man, your turn. So his buddy gets in the harness, backs up, puts his weight on the rope. And they said, go ahead, man, just jump. And he's like, I can't jump, he said. I can't jump. And so he said, instead, he reached his foot down and found like a hole in the rock, you know, put his foot in that. Then he reached his other foot down. And he found another spot. And he was going like, like putting his feet, finding spots and climbing down. And you can do that as long as you're going like this, right? But when that cliff starts cutting back like this, unless you're built like Kenny, you can't do that, right? You can't hold on at that point. You know what I mean? you got to be able to repel at that point. So he couldn't do it. So he was looking for a piece of rock to put his foot. He couldn't find one. So he said he just walked back up. He's like he climbed back up to the top. He said, I can't do it, man. I'll walk around. From 75 feet down, this pastor that I like to listen to, he said, that looked like he was doing the exact same thing I was doing. This is the difference between religious zeal and walking by faith. See, you can rock climb and you can repel, and for a while you can look like you're doing the same thing. You got the same gear on. You're starting at the same spot. You even look like you're making the same progress. But at some point, if you're trying to do it all on your own, that's rock climbing. At some point, if you're putting all your weight and trust in the rope, that's repelling. At some point, if you're trying to do the Christian experience on your own, manage things, make a few good changes in your life, put some effort into place so that your life gets better, At some point, you're going to reach a spot where you can't climb that way anymore. And eventually, you're going to get so tired and frustrated. You know what you're going to do? You're going to just give up, climb back to the top, walk away. But the guy who's repelling, eventually, he's like, well, this is sweet. doesn't take any effort at all. I'm loving this. The rope is doing all the work. And you may look the same if you're religious, but it isn't the same as walking by faith. And so are you going to believe what God says? Because if you don't, it's going to make you disobey. And if you disobey, it's going to bring great consequences, consequences that will last maybe your whole life. Look at verse 12 in Judges chapter 2. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. They angered the Lord, and this made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time, every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned, and the people were in great distress. In verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, He was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. 
I want to just point out to you real quick three things about God's character in that passage. Three things that prove his love for us. Here's the first one. It's going to sound weird. God got angry. God got angry. See, the opposite of love isn't anger. It's apathy. If you really love somebody, you get angry with like a jealous anger about it. When they disobey you, when they give their affections to somebody else, anger isn't evil. And you say, oh, but, but God can't hate, God can't be angry. I'm just reading you the passage, right? God got angry because the Lord is angry. Why? He's jealous for us. He's jealous for us. He loves us so much that he is angry when we give our affections to somebody else. He was angry then. But it doesn't stop there. The second thing, he had pity on them. Like a dad would have on their kid. You're looking at your kid, and even if it's their fault and they're getting in trouble, you still feel some pity for them. You still feel sad about it, right? You look at him, you're like, man, I wish you wouldn't have to be like that. Why don't you just obey? God felt that because he loves us. He loved them. And the third thing is actions. His actions. They didn't ask for forgiveness. They didn't repent. One of the themes you're going to see throughout the book of Judges is God intervenes and rescues even when they don't ask for help because he had pity on them. They were oppressed and suffering. And God showed he loved them. He's the one who initiates the rescuing. He's the one who enacts it. He's the one who completes it. He does it all. And so God sends judges. But there's a dilemma. The judges turn out to be broken just like the other people. They're no different than us. There's a dilemma because the people God is sending to save others are themselves in need of saving. They're inconsistent, unbelieving, cowardly, greedy, immoral people. And so this question must be answered. How can these judges be the saviors of Israel when they themselves need to be saved? How can these judges, how can these judges rescue when they themselves need to be rescued? How can they save when they have the same problems that we have? And it reminded me of this story I heard about four years ago on the news of a grandmother in California. Maybe you heard this story. There was a grandmother in California. She was watching her two-year-old granddaughter, and she couldn't find her, so she looked out the back patio door only to see the two-year-old had fallen in the swimming pool, didn't know how to swim, and was flailing around, right? So the grandmother runs out, jumps in the pool, and three hours later, the EMTs find both of them dead in the pool because the grandmother didn't know how to swim either. How can somebody who has the exact same problem as you save you from that problem? That's the dilemma of the book of Judges. God's answer, he's going to send another judge that's going to come later. For us, he's already come. Another judge is going to come, and he's not going to have the same problems. What are my problems? I'm wicked, and I die. God's going to send a judge that isn't wicked, and that will take the punishment of my death for me to rescue me. Somebody who isn't like me. Okay, so God's in the middle of what seems to be a contradiction here. I'm going to show it to you in case you missed it. We read through it the first time. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2. I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore or I promised to give your ancestors. And I said I would never break my covenant with you. And look down at verse 15. Here's the second promise. 
Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn or promised to them they were in great distress. How can these two things go together? God says, I promised to give you this land, but now I'm going to promise to fight against you so you can't get the land. That doesn't seem to go together, right? It seems to be a contradiction. He had promised to give them the land, but is also promising to punish injustice and sin. So how can he keep both of these promises? By sending Jesus. By sending a judge who could deliver from our enemies, but also suffer the punishment for our disobedience at the same time. And we're left with the third principle from this story. If you remember, I said small areas of disbelief lead to subtle acts of disobedience. Subtle acts of disobedience lead to large areas of disaster. And then the last principle from this story, life is a choice. It's always a choice between the God who saves and the gods who enslave. You can choose the gods in the land around you, or you can trust what the real God says. To understand this, you've got to go the whole way back to God's covenant promise with Abraham. And I know we're getting into kind of the weeds of this, right? But you've got to understand this to understand the book of Judges. Back in Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant, a promise, an agreement with Abraham. He says to Abraham, I'm going to give you all your descendants blessing forever. It's played out in that there are special people for God. He gives them a land and he gives them blessing for the rest of their existence. He promises it to them. It's not conditional. He gives it to them forever and it's still going to happen. It still is happening. And so God shows up to seal this promise with Abraham and talk to him about it and and make the bond so sure that Abraham would never doubt that God was going to deliver on his promise. And they do this thing. It's kind of weird. It doesn't make sense in our culture. But he's going to seal this covenant with a ritual. It's called the cleaving of animals. Okay, so it's a little gross, but just hang with me a second, right? So in ancient culture, they would do this thing where if you made a covenant, they'd take five animals. And God tells Abraham to do this in Genesis chapter 15. He says, I want you to take five animals, kill them, cut them in half. And split them. So half is on one side and half is on the other side. And then the blood from those five animals would run down into the middle. And you would take the person you've made an agreement with, put your arm around them, and you'd walk through the blood together. And the blood would splash up onto your robe, signifying, hey, if I ever break this promise, may the same thing happen to me that's happened to these animals. And God's going to do this ritual with Abraham. And he shows up, but right before he does it, Abraham kills these animals, splits them apart. Right before he finishes the ritual, it says Abraham falls into a deep sleep. Now, there's a lot of speculation about this deep sleep. A lot of commentators think that kind of signifies our state of sin and dead in the world today. But regardless, he falls into this deep sleep, but God finishes the ritual without him. God finishes the ritual without him. He walks through the blood as if to say... I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to do my part. And you know what? Even if you don't do your part, I'm going to do your part too. I'm going to be faithful. This is the theme message of the book of Judges. I will be faithful even when you are not faithful. And we're going to see that played out throughout this whole book. 
that I will be faithful even when you're not. I want to read you one more paragraph I wrote down because I'm going to mess it up if I don't, okay? I know some of you feel weak, like you're a bipolar Christian. I know that you can't overcome a certain temptation. You think you'll never make it. But God says, I determined it. You weren't there when I made the promise. You didn't hang on the cross, helping me to pay the punishment for the promise. You didn't help me bring Jesus back from the dead. I did all of it by myself. And I will see it through to the end. What I have determined will come to pass. And so in the book of Judges, we must come face to face with this God and decide, will you choose the God who saves, or will you choose the gods who enslave? Will you choose the gods who put you in chains, or will you choose the God who will pursue you like a father, even when you turn your back on him? You must choose. Because in religion, in faith, as in many other areas of life, there is no middle ground and you can't opt out. It's just like breathing. You're either breathing or you're not breathing. There's no middle ground. You're either with God or against God. There is nowhere in the middle. You either choose the God who saves or you choose the gods who enslave. There is no middle ground when it comes to worship. Who will you worship? And Tim Keller said it this way. Jesus is the only God who, if you find him, will satisfy you. If you fail him, will forgive you. And if you run from him, will pursue you. That's why I serve the God I serve. That's what makes him different than Buddha and Muhammad. Those guys are dead. How are they going to save me? Those guys are wicked. How are they going to make me right? I need a God who doesn't have the same problems I got. God sent that judge, Jesus. And he didn't sin like I do. And he died for me so I wouldn't have to. Will you choose that God? What do I got to do to choose him? You just say, I choose you. Yes, I'll take it. I receive it. I believe whatever you want to say, it doesn't matter. It's about what's really going on in here. Who's the God of your life, you or Jehovah? Who do you trust for your salvation, you or Jesus? Who do you trust to satisfy you, a girlfriend or the God of the universe? It blows my mind, the people that say, I trusted Jesus to save me, but now I'm not going to do what he says to satisfy me. If God is enough to save you, surely he's enough to satisfy you now. If God can save you for eternity, surely he can be trusted with your budget. Right? The question isn't, can you? The question is, will you? I know we're running late today. I'm sorry. But I want to share one more passage from this story with you. Because it hit me hard this week. Mother's Day, thinking about my mom, thinking about what it means to be a parent myself. And I want you to see that in one generation, this changed. Look back at verse 10 in chapter 2 of Judges. After that generation died, what generation? Moses, Joshua, 
all the people that were with them trusting God, conquering the land. When they died, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. Look at verse 12 or 11. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. And look at the last verse there. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. In case you missed it, it all changed in one generation. I take that so seriously for my kids. Do your kids believe that you care more about where they go to college than where they spend eternity? Do your kids believe that you care more about cash than Christ? Do your kids believe you care more about football than the Father? It can change in one generation. And everything I've been fighting for my whole life, I can see my kids abandoned if I don't set the pace. No way, God. I would rather die than see my kids choose me over you. I would rather lose everything I have and see my kids follow you anyhow and save some money in the bank or always be with somebody and not be alone. It can all change in one generation. The responsibility is great question today is, will you? God can save you right now. But not just that, he can satisfy you. Jesus is enough to save you and to satisfy you. He's made you for so much more. I want to let the real Holy Spirit, the real preacher, preach today. Just for a couple minutes, I'm going to give you a couple minutes on your own just to talk to God. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know what it is you need to talk to him about. But, but answer the question while you're talking to him during this song. Where is God? Where are you saying to God, I can't? And God is looking back at you and saying, 